This is the Movie Hall of Fame Class of 1971 for Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. Adam Hall is on the other line. Yep, still here. Still there, still talking movies. Yep, yep, as always. I got nothing better to do. Yeah, we really don't have anything better to do. I mean, not like we wouldn't be doing this anyway. but No, yeah, true. But it really just, ugh, it's funny. When you're when it boils down to like every week, you're just doing podcasts. It's like, man, like I really don't have anything to do. Yeah. Like having this one thing that's constantly set up. It's like, yeah, that's it. That's all we got. It is nice <laughs> to have this familiar drum beat because I know a lot of people don't have this familiar drum beat no. and they're probably lost. A lot of people are starting to lose their minds, I think. Yeah. 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 A lot of people like depression, I'm sure, is starting to set in. <laughs> well, I did see that. I mean, not to take this to a <laughs> dark and bleak note on this podcast about classic movies. Um, but yeah, no, suicide numbers are up. Drug use is up. Domestic yeah. violence is up. All that stuff. It's terrible. Um, so, I mean, I, I know this is kind of a cliche. The cure may be worse than the disease. And uh, I don't know. Could be that way. Could be that way. We may be overcorrecting. So? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not a doctor, so the cure isn't like just staying home, not doing anything. Yeah, um, yeah. it's possible that we lose just as many people to other, um, to other illnesses, mental illnesses, mm-hmm. depression, whatever. I can't wait to see the movie that comes out that is not specifically inspired by coronavirus, but takes those themes and what it did to humanity in the same way, like you have Godzilla and the atomic bomb. Yeah, I want to. I want to see a movie of that style, like an. Yeah, allegory. the metaphor. Yeah, the metaphor yeah. for coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. You know they're working on these scripts already because there's screenwriters sitting in their apartments by themselves. <laughs> yeah, they're getting all sorts of ideas just watching their families tear each other apart. <laughs> yeah, there is going to be a glut, a glut of coronavirus-related uh, screenplays coming out. Well, while my wife was holding me at gunpoint, let me tell you about the script I'm writing, honey. <laughs> before you kill me, <laughs> this freeze frame. You're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. God, oh, that's um, the worst cliche. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's let's uh, forget the troubles of the world for a second and just talk movies. Yeah, because movies are dope. Movies are pretty dope, man. Yeah, I've seen some good movies. Have you? Give me an example. Candyman. Oh, okay. I actually watched it for the first time, and it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, my impression is that it's just a schlocky cult horror movie, and is that correct? It's like a Chicago movie. Word. Like, I mean, as Chicago as it can be, given the fact that it's like a slasher horror, but it's like awesome. I mean, I really liked it. I was thoroughly surprised. I'm not sure if it's quite your cup of tea, but I think it actually was a halfway decent Chicago movie for the most part. Yeah, you'd be be surprised. And it's a good fantasy edge that's very clearly Clive Barker. He didn't direct it, but it's based on one of his stories. Mm -hmm. And... um. I thought Tony Todd as Candyman is awesome. And he's he's actually going to play the same character in the new one, I guess. So that's oh, cool. awesome. That's great. Yep, yep. And um, it's got some really great music that my dad kept commenting on because he was kind of coming in and out. And he's like, what in the hell is that like Catholic romantic music playing? It's fucking, it's freaking me out, Adam. And I was like, yeah, it's like, it's, ew, it's eerie. It's really good. And some of the imagery is just completely unsettling. Bees, especially. Holy shit. I don't care for the bees. You know that about me. I don't care for the bees. (laughs) You and Zach, like, you would have a conniption with this one because there's some good bee shit in this movie. Oh, no. (laughs) It was was surprisingly solid. Like I said, I'm... 
I don't know if you would love it necessarily, but it's it's pretty dope and some good performances. Surprisingly good performances. I am super interested in the remake. You know how much I love Jordan Peele. He was in the writer's room for it. And mm-hmm. the style looks to be directly aping some of Jordan Peele's stuff. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know if it's going to feel like Get Out or Us, but it certainly looks a lot like Get Out and Us. So well, this, I'm cool with that. Well, there's some social themes in the in this original story. And I when watching it, I could tell why Jordan Peele was maybe interested in that. Mm-hmm. How he could kind of add his own spin to it. It made a lot of sense. It's like, it's something that was oddly kind of contemporary. I mean, okay. it's not that old, but it still makes sense even today. So early nineties, 92, I think. Okay. So yeah, really good. Really That's good. Awesome. Anything else? Uh, why do I feel like I watched? Oh, uh, I no. I, I, you know, I really got to keep track of my letterbox. I'm really bad at this. Mm. Yeah. I feel like I watched one more, but I, I, I must've forgotten what it was. Um, I uh, have just been catching up on the movies of 1971, so I haven't seen anything um, from recent past. Mm. But yes. I did watch Monday's episode of Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah. And that is uh, the greatest work of storytelling I've seen this year. <laughs> that, Better that Call hour. Saul? Yeah. Okay. That that hour of television was just No Country for Old Men with fucking Saul Goodman and Mike Ehrmantraut in the desert. Has it eclipsed Breaking Bad for you? damn it's getting close dude yeah it sounds oh, like it's it. right there it's right there yeah this season has been the best season they've done like every episode has just been a home run okay every episode I, i've only seen a handful of episodes in the early seasons and they're all remarkable yes it's one of those like scenarios where it's like everything everything i've seen by this is fantastic why haven't i just sat down and committed to the whole series it's just perfect it's like perfect yeah. storytelling the montages the cuts the zooms the pans it's like everything is just perfectly packaged into a beautiful box. Well, this is what I like about Vince Gilligan too, is that he, I don't, he's not only a really, really good writer, but I just think he's a pretty confident filmmaker and yeah. makes really interesting so choices. So Vince directed Monday's episode. Cool. Um, ironically enough, he was not in the writer's room for this season of Soul. Really? Oh. Yeah. Had nothing to do with this season because he was working on El Camino, which I kind of wish he didn't do, but we talked about that, whatever. Uh, El Camino's fine. Yeah. He came in to direct episode eight just by chance and it turns out to be one of like the signature episodes of the series. Like it's a very set piece heavy action e uh, episode, which oh. is something that Better Call Saul very rarely does. One of the miracles of the show is that they've been able to make case law thrilling. They've been able to make uh, elder law thrilling. They've been able wow. to make the minutia of the courtroom thrilling. Neat. And this one, they just make it a full on drug caper. And it's <laughs> like, it looks like Lawrence Arabia of Arabia. And it's, it's just amazing. It's incredible. Wow. And if you're not watching this show, you need to do yourself a favor. You're in quarantine. Just binge it. It's on Netflix. Do it. Do it. I could do that. I could do that. You got, you got to do it, dude. It's the, it's the best, man. But everyone wants me to watch Tiger King or whatever the fuck it's called. Fuck Tiger King, man. Okay. Joe Exotic can wait. <laughs> he's in jail stuff. he's not going anywhere <laughs> Saul is here and I, I know one of the big complaints about the show was that it doesn't feel significant enough like it doesn't feel urgent or as urgent as Breaking Bad did it's a prequel you know where these characters are going it's uh, again lower stakes in terms of violence but it is uh, incredibly urgent I would say it, it cool. feels urgent every week I look forward to Better Call Saul on Monday mm. night that's a good feeling, though. It's been a long time since I've had a TV show that I just completely looked forward to. It's like, oh, it's going to be 
it's going to be coming out on Monday or whatever. I got to sit down. Like, yeah, well, we don't like, really have that feeling anymore with streaming. I can't, I can't, it's hard. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm a little ashamed to say, honestly, I think the last time it happened for me was Fargo. That's how out of touch I am with TV. Oh yeah. I mean, sure. I, I mean, I had that with succession um, and game of Thrones, obviously for most people. Yeah. Um, but a lot of these other shows uh, were things that I binge watched Mindhunter, which I just got my father into by the way. And he adores Mindhunter. Are you liking Mindhunter now? I like season two of Mindhunter. I re- I I go back at like Mind Mind Hunter now. I'm not. It's, I'm not. I don't know if it's like the best show on Netflix. It's one of them, but it might be like the most bingeable. Oh yeah, it's such a like a breezy watch. I just, Easy I, watch. Yeah, even though it's like heavy and in like yeah dour. Like just so much fun, and I I I loved the the second season. I really did. Oh, I thought season two far surpassed season one. Yeah, far surpassed. Yeah. The Atlanta stuff in the last three or four episodes was just magic. Mm-hmm. It was really I, good. I think the initial Kemper interviews in season one are still incredible, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, all the Atlanta drama is just excellent. Manson episode was great too. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I I've gone back on YouTube just to watch the, the Manson scene. It's so good. Yeah. But I, point being, these are all shows that I've talked about with my friends. We've talked about Mindhunter on the podcast several times and mm-hmm. it doesn't have that same feeling of anticipation every week because it's on Netflix. Yeah. Like I used to get that feeling with 24 24 on Monday nights, nine o'clock, my family would line up to watch Jack Bauer torture some people. Um, and it, it was appointment television. Now there is no such thing as appointment television. You set your own schedule. So it's not like you have to wait for the doctor to check up on your health. You just do a home checkup on your own convenience. See, that's why I think like people are too spoiled nowadays, you know, and that sense of urgency and, and no one, you know, no one has any patience for stuff like that anymore. Yeah, I don't know. It makes the stuff feel less impactful when you don't have the, the buildup to every episode the same way you would like with a movie, which is why I kind of appreciate in a way I sort of appreciate Mandalorian for doing mm-hmm. that. Even though I think it would have worked better if those episodes were like an hour long, which is weird. It's it's this you is think so. No, no, no. Here's the thing. I think as for a television series where the your the build up and the wait is for a half hour long uh, sh- episode, that's that's a little weird. I I don't because I didn't satisfying. You think? I well because I didn't watch the show as it was airing. I saw it after everything had come out, and then I binged it, and it was an awesome experience, and I loved that, but. I question if it would have felt as satisfying if I was watching it as it was getting released because of those half hour long increments. Um, I don't know. I did watch it as it was getting released and I did find it very satisfying, but I I do think that's because I was hungry for a show like that. I was hungry for a show that felt traditional and that it was an adventure of the week. Mm -hmm. It was not an hour and a half long. It wasn't as weighty and dark and depressing as some of these HBO prestige shows. Um, And so it was like watching a really good episode of like Law and Order, okay, every week. Yeah, um, I looked yeah. forward to it because it was Star Wars and because the craft was incredible. Yeah, um, and I, and as I said, it knowing it's not great actually made it greater. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. There's nothing better than a show that has self awareness. Yeah, because so many of these shows are incredibly indulgent, not only mm-hmm. in their run times but in their content. Like some of them, yeah. and not to say that there isn't a lot of great TV out there, but mm-hmm. um. Yeah, that that whole network sensibility that that uh, that John Favreau embraced in The Mandalorian was something I had not seen in a very long time. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, I I I, I was skeptical of the show for the longest time, and then I watched it, and I had a total blast with it. Yeah. That being said, Better Call Saul is that show. 
It is that show <laughs> for me, and it should be that show for you. It is. All right, right. all right, all right. Uh, let's talk 1971. Sure. Six movies nominated for induction into the Movie Hall of Fame. They are Dirty Harry, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Harold and Maude, The French Connection, A Clockwork Orange, and The Last Picture Show. One this of is one of my favorite lineups, I think. Man, it's an awesome lineup. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking awesome lineup. Yeah. And the, the, the reason is because I, I, I don't know what I'm going to go with. Uh, good. Good thing you don't know what you're going to go with because you don't have control, motherfucker. No. And, and the, well, well, we'll get to like what I actually think about. The, the. I don't think this worked out entirely in your favor, by the way. Okay. Why do you say that? Because you could cut. Well, we'll get there. No, we'll save it. All right. <laughs> we'll save it towards the end. I will say I am. I am undecided as well. Okay. I don't know. And so I will take your uh, advice, I suppose. But um, yeah, it's an awesome year. And it's. Not like an awesome year, like say 1976, which had Rocky and Taxi Driver. Yeah, these two just iconic, iconic, uh, like pantheon movies. There are some movies on here that are cult classics, underrated gems, mainstream classics, dark, controversial movies. Um, this is not just a list of six popcorn flicks. This is a list no. of six really interesting, diverse. Uh, film favorites. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and I am really looking forward to talking to you about some of these. Oh yeah, perfect like generational movies in a lot of ways. Like this came like right as the like the studio system had essentially collapsed, and then this was a birth immediately after the um, um, the Bonnie and Clyde's. Yes, you know this is the children of that. And uh, man, are they <laughs> some devious children? Yep. <laughs> Here's some ne'er-do-well kids. Some I think about it. I think every single one of the movies is that. Seriously. <laughs> I think every single one of the movies. I think in their own way. Yeah. I think every <laughs> single one of these movies is kind of transgressive and breaking yeah. rules and, and being bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. All right. Well, let's talk about it. Um, let me first say that uh, the highest grossing movie of this year was Fiddler on the Roof. Highest grossing movie of that year was not nominated. Behind the French Connection diamonds are forever dirty harry billy jack they round out your top five i didn't realize dirty harry did so well oh yeah uh actually number six you got summer of 42 number seven was the last picture show wow carnal knowledge at eight clockwork orange at nine bed knobs and broomsticks a disney movie a much forgotten disney movie at number 10 best picture your nominees were a clockwork orange fiddler on the roof the last picture show and nicholas and alexandra and your winner is the french connection Mm-hmm. William Freakin, old Billy Freaks, wins best Billy director Freaks. for the French oh Connection. Gene Hackman wins best actor for the French Connection. Uh, Jane Fonda wins best actress for Clute, which uh, was a Pakula movie. Am I correct I'm, about that? I've not seen Clute. It's Alan Pakula. I think it's a thriller. It's like a spy thriller, right? Okay. Uh, but she wins there. Ben Johnson wins best supporting actor for Last Picture Show as Sam the Lion and Cloris Leachman. Really? Wins what? Best Supporting Actress for Last Picture Show. As oh, Ruth. God. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. So, uh, pretty, pretty good, as pretty, Larry David would say. Pretty, pretty good. Also an incredible 10th season. Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> Have not watched it yet, but I will. So good! I mean, what is, when is it not good? Be honest. No, never, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like, yeah, of course it's good, Nico. Move on. Jesus. <laughs> National Film Registry inducts the following films. Dirty Harry, The French Connection, Harold and Maude, The Hospital, which uh, George C. Scott? Never even right? heard of it. Never even heard of it. I think it's a Chayefsky script. Really? Okay. Hold on. Let me look this up. Yeah, the hospital. hospital. George C. Scott. Yeah, written by Patty Chayefsky. Well, all right, all right. I've never seen it either. Uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, often considered one of the great westerns of all time, just missed the cut, I would say. <laughs> um, A New Leaf, which is something I'm not familiar with at all. Shaft. Oh, Shaft. That's <laughs> right. These are all inducted? All in the National Film Registry, yeah. Wow, okay. Shaft made it. Two Lane Blacktop which I've never heard of and Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory in the national film registry, a clockwork orange, not included. Go figure that one out. Yeah, that's weird. Explain that one to me. I can't really do that. That's okay. very bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Of all of, of all of Kubrick's movies. <laughs> that's one of the ones that does not get inducted. It's just really strange that a new leaf and shaft are in the national film registry and a clockwork orange is not. I actually understand Shaft. Yeah, I don't understand A Clockwork Orange not being there, though. Uh, a couple other honorable mentions. I mentioned Clute, obviously. Play Misty for me. Clint Eastwood directed Thriller. I think that's one of his, if not his first films he ever directed. I think you're right about that. And I was just watching Dirty Harry for the first time yesterday on Netflix. Play Misty for me is featured on the marquee on one of the movie um, theaters in the background. There you go. So a little Easter egg for old Clint. Uh, you ever seen Walkabout? No. Okay, that's Nicholas Rogue. I've heard amazing things about it. Get Carter, Michael Kine. Haven't seen that one either. One of his iconic film roles. Duel came out this year. Oh, Duel's really good. Yeah, Duel's awesome. Yeah, I really if, like Duel. If it were not such a stacked year, I think I would have nominated it. Uh, it's Duel's a funny, fun. co- funny conversation, that one. Yeah, I sometimes am surprised that it's a Spielberg movie. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a TV movie, literally. Um, yeah. But yeah, could be the best tv movie of all time that's a good question i don't know the the john carpenter elvis movie is pretty good oh word okay i've never seen that yeah kurt russell's elvis he's awesome uh and bananas one of the early woody allen films also in 1971 i gotta watch some early early woody allen i think the earliest i've ever seen is everything you wanted to know about sex and that's about it i don't think you do no is it is it shit i've seen bananas and it's uh, it's he is tracing back his sketch roots okay you know he it, it is very like dick cavett old school network television and it's very broad in its comedy it's more satirical than his later stuff all right um i might I, like that it, there's pre annie hall and there's post annie hall for woody and i think post annie hall is no doubt better well yeah i think most people would agree yeah uh let's talk dirty harry first though okay uh, Dirty Harry is directed by Don Siegel, starring Clint Eastwood, uh, Andrew Robinson as just killer in the mm-hmm. credits. He's never named by name. They don't call uh, him Scorpio. They could have just done that. They call him just killer. That is how, uh, I guess, inhumanized he was in this movie. They could have gone Zodiac killer, cough, cough. I mean, Scorpio. <laughs> yeah, they could have. Uh, when a madman calling himself the Scorpio killer menaces the city tough as nails, San Francisco police inspector, dirty Harry Callahan 
is assigned to track down and ferret out the crazed psychopath. Yeah. I know what you're thinking, punk. Did I fire six shots or only five? Well, to be honest, in all this excitement, I must have lost count myself. <laughs> so you have to ask yourself just one question. Do you feel lucky? What well, do you, punk? Punk. Uh, I love when Ryan Stiles does it on Whose Line Is It Anyway. That's his favorite line. As Carol yeah. Channing. Oh, he's great. I know what you're thinking. I have never seen Dirty Harry, which is so crazy. I thought that was nuts, man. I, I was completely floored when you were saying that, oh, I got to watch Last Picture Show. I'm like, okay, that figures. And I got to watch Dirty Harry. Like, what? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies that I always was able to quote, and I knew who Harry Callahan was, and I got the gist of the movie, but I don't think I've ever seen a Dirty Harry movie. Um, oh, really? There's six of them, I think? Are there five that many? Or, five or six of them, yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those movies that I know by the references, and I can quote it, obviously. Um, but yeah, I never sat down and saw it. I kind of wish that I saw this when I was 12 years old, because I would have loved it at age 12. Yeah. Um, I was also kind of surprised that Go Ahead Make My Day wasn't in this movie. That one is in Sudden Impact, which is the fourth one. It took four movies? Yeah, dude. Really? Yeah. Is Sudden Impact good? Yeah, it's one of the, I think it's the only one that Clint Eastwood directed. There, I don't, I think, I mean, the, the first one's clearly the best, but... I think the uh, Dirty Harry movies are consistently good. They get more, like, action-y. You know, like action hero e in the same way, like, you know, like, I mean, I guess we'll talk about it, but these movies sort of, I think, made way for what eventually became the 80s action hero yes. <laughs> in, a lot of, in a lot of ways. And um, they get more, they, they get closer to that as the movies progress. Um, well, the Deadpool, which is the last uh, <laughs> Dirty Harry movie, which is about like celebrities being assassinated because people are betting on their death. Yep. That is so 80s in, oh, its, yeah. in its plot. It is very goofy. And this one, although kind of goofy and kind of cartoonish, still has a hard edge to it. And it's still I a pretty good San Francisco cop movie, I'd say. It's, well, this is the thing is that I, we were talking about this beforehand and I was prepared to be frustrated if with you coming on and being like it's not an honest portrayal of san francisco cop life i'm like it is the movie was birthed out of the uh, why are you the, getting the, frustrated at my speculated upon response to the movie because i fucking know you that's i why. didn't say anything <laughs> that's not even a criticism i said i know but it's something you have said countless times before this is i'm this is how much of a cliche you and i are becoming i think we were yeah. talking about that in text message is that we get frustrated at our perceived reactions to things yeah. with no evidence that that's the reaction no i, I this, I, this the, is the definition of straw man adam yeah, I know. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to hate the movie or anything. I was just like, Ugh, if there's something he'll criticize, it would be that bullshit. Uh, <laughs> what I will say, though, is that um, the movie is interesting in that, like, it's not a realistic portrayal of cop life, like, at all in San Francisco. Yet at the same time, it does feel like a pretty good San Francisco movie and oddly kind of grounded because of how gritty it is. You know? Well, here's what I'll say. Yes, Dirty Harry is not the, t the the kind of cop that you would see patrolling the streets of San Francisco. No. But the last act of this movie, particularly like talk of Miranda rights yeah. and torturing the victim and our inability to prosecute because you broke the rules 
and a cop going outside the lines and outside of the rules in order to achieve justice. I mean, that stuff did feel pretty grounded. Like, I feel like in 1971, there weren't a ton of cop movies that were paying attention to process and that were paying attention to the Fourth Amendment. So, I mean, there is mention of that, although I think the character is quite cartoonish. Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's it's certainly drawing on very grounded ideas like those Miranda rights or how you're allowed to prosecute, how you're allowed to engage specifically. I mean, that's something that's talked about constantly and not just with the the higher ups, but also the killer himself saying, like, I have rights. You know, you're not allowed to do this to me, that and that. And it's something odd that's oddly pre- prevalent today. <laughs> well, yeah. Kinda, kinda I mean, neat. now it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's a staple of every cop show um i think the wire had a lot to do with that um Mm -hmm. but yeah process is is everything in a police procedural um so i appreciated that element of it um i i do think in general the movie is a little dated uh i i don't think it could have come out 10 years ago and had the same impact i think certainly it would not have had the same impact 10 years ago he's sort of like a precursor to jack bauer not to go back to 24 too much uh this movie (laughs) as as roger ebert said in his review is essentially fascist like it has a very fascist ideology and that was jack bauer's whole thing (laughs) like torture now ask questions later Mm -hmm. you know what i mean just stab the terrorist in the gut if it means disarming the bomb and we'll worry about the constitutionality of all this uh, once we save lives. Uh, that is Harry's philosophy. That is his ethos. Um, the movie sort of sides with him on yep. that. You are rooting for him to succeed. You are rooting for him to take justice into his own hands. And you are totally fine when, spoiler alert, Harry shoots the guy at the end of the movie. Um, so, you know, could it have come out 10 years ago? Probably not. But it, as a timepiece as a time capsule, as a, as a relic of a fonder time in Hollywood, <laughs> if you yeah. want to call it that, I, I think it's entertaining enough. Oh, I think it's super entertaining. I actually rewatched it, and I was actually, uh, I, I see this movie every once in a while, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, you know, I always, I'm always like, like, like surprised by how quickly this movie moves for me. I think yeah. it's actually consistently entertaining. I don't necessarily find it dating with the filmmaking. I find it more, like you said, if it's going to be dated, it's more so like the 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 social themes and sort of the way they the, the movie rationalizes Harry's behavior, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, but I think, like as By far the way, as like I a, love twenty four. Let yeah. me be clear about that. I am not using the twenty four comparison as a pejorative. Twenty four yeah. was the fucking best, dude. Yeah. Yeah. But this movie is like, like I said, I think thoroughly entertaining across the board. I mean, for many reasons, but uh, it's interesting, like how this movie came about. Mm-hmm. It's it's it feels like like a lot like the Shaft era too. Like this movie, in a lot of ways, looks like that movie. <laughs> oddly, mm. even though I mean, the black exploitation film style is not there, of course, but the movie sort of has that same sort of like like vibey feel particularly with the music which i love um but like like i was telling to you this movie is essentially birthed out of the frustrations of trying to catch the zodiac killer yes this movie is meant to be a power fantasy for those who were irritated by everything that was going on in the city of san francisco and vallejo uh in 1969 so Hmm. and you told me that uh, mark ruffalo's character in zodiac his name is actually uh 
directly derived from Harry Callahan, correct? It's not the name. It's his personality. It's not, not, not even his personality. It's just the character. When they were writing the oh. Harry character, they were going to base it off of Dave Toskey. That's his real name, Dave Toskey. Okay. And they were like, yeah, that's who uh, Harry's going to be essentially based on and some of his exploits and whatnot. But it's obviously radically different. Got it. Because the, the Dave Toskey you know is pretty accurate, accurately represented in Zodiac. Got it. Um, one of the things I really liked about this movie, hopping on that idea of the revenge fantasy, power fantasy, is that the killer not only is unnamed in this movie, you don't learn mm-hmm. anything about his backstory. He is, for the most part, unmotivated and kind yeah. of just a clown. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that in the context of this movie. Obviously, he does some scary things and he hijacks a bus full of children and he creeps you out at times. Yeah. But I'm watching that scene where Harry stabs him in the leg and he mm-hmm. lets out just this turkey like screech, <laughs> of, oh! yeah. you know, with, with his <laughs> yeah. mouth agape. And mm-hmm. that's just like, you know, Looney Tunes shit. Yep. And and uh, that to me um, is sort of signified that this is a revenge fantasy. This is how the filmmakers and the writers saw the Zodiac killer. He yeah. is not this brilliant criminal mastermind. He is not, uh, you know, a genius that is toying with San Francisco PD and he is not righteous in his motivations. He's just an unmotivated loser and yeah. an idiot. And he does idiotic things and he looks like a schlub and <laughs> you just want to shoot him in the face because he's annoying more than anything else. He's oh, annoying God, yeah. to Harry. He's not he, it's not that he's scary, it's not that he's threatening, it's not that he's menacing. He's just a fucking nuisance and he needs to be taken behind the barn and shot. Mhm. That's what I loved about it too. It's just like there's there's there are a few movie villains that I've wanted to die in a movie so badly as this as this particular guy. Yeah. And he plays the part very well. You're right, like he's a clown and you're not supposed to take that like too seriously. But like, oh my god, is it satisfying to see him get his comeuppance at the end. Just Yes, very satisfying. Every, he's a jerk. Well, yeah, every decision that the character makes is just like, oh, fuck this guy. Yeah. I fucking hate even the little decisions. Because there's nothing redeeming about him. No. At no point does the film, and I appreciate this, attempt to put you in his head and sympathize with him. No. No, you know? and it, it's a fine line if your movie's going to try to do that. It's in it can fail spectacularly. So this movie just says we're not even going to bother. That that would be antithetical to the whole conceit of the film to begin with. Sure. So, and and that whole process of trying to get this guy is what is so entertaining about it, and just, and also just through Harry and his just like oh fuck this kind mm. of attitude. I just <laughs> exactly. love that. You don't you don't have to go as far to s- see him as like a a fascist you don't have to do that if you don't want to i i under but i do understand what roger ebert means yeah in a a lot of ways i mean i i would say the movie is at least in part fascist even if it's if it's subtext more than actual text yeah but again it's it's very much one of those films where it's like just go in and enjoy yourselves guys of course it's escapism yeah it's an action movie in that way and that's okay and i mean i don't think it lives beyond that which is hard why it's hard for me to go as far to call it like quote unquote a fascist movie i don't i don't think that's it's not interested in the subject matter enough to be able to be fascist. you're you're completely missing the point if you go that far with it i understand but calm down is sort of my response yeah i also have no problem with it being fascist i'm totally cool (laughs) with that yeah i'm totally fine 24 was the same way i'm cool with it it's not real I, life. I don't I don't condone condone this actual police behavior in, in real life. Yeah. This is the thing is like I, I don't know. I have a blast with this movie. Actually on rewatch, I, I sort of realized that it might be one of my favorites. 
it's, uh, it's just, I, yeah. I, I, I think it's great. I really do. Yeah, I think it's very good. I, I don't think I would call it great. I, I would. <laughs> I think it's a, a relic of its time. I think it's very entertaining. Um, yeah. I, I think it moves. It's never boring. Is it great cinema? Mm, I guess who's to say, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like I, I, I sort of, I know what you mean by that too. It's like, is it great? I, I don't know. Maybe not, but maybe that uncertainty is what makes me more comfortable saying, yeah, in a way it is great, I guess. I, I really like this movie. I think it's Fair awesome. Enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I'm not inducting it, by the way. No. It's not going to happen. No, I don't care. Okay. <laughs> uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is next up. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, directed by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp. Did you just uh, say directed by Tim Burton? Oh, oops. Wrong movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Directed by Mel Stewart, starring Gene Wilder. <laughs> Along with, uh, that was a dumb joke. Uh, starring <laughs> as well, Jack Albertson. You ever just make a joke and you instantly regret it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, the person, realize the person you made it to. <laughs> just super fucking cheap. It was just a cheap joke. It, it was, Nico. You're uh, better than that. <laughs> Peter Ostrom is also in it. Um, it was actually nominated for two Oscars. Mm-hmm. No, actually, just the one. Best Original Score is the nominee. Yeah. Did they have a, a Best Original Song back then? Because if they did, then uh, then uh, the the freaking the 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 garden song or whatever. Come with me, yeah. and you'll be that one. Yeah. In a world of pure imagination, <laughs> I like Family Guy's version much more. Yeah. In a world of pure inebriation, <laughs> a poor but hopeful boy seeks one of the five coveted golden tickets that will send him on a tour of Willy Wonka's mysterious chocolate factory uh has this movie almost become underrated what do you mean like it's such an iconic children's film and it's referenced and remade and toyed with and tampered with and i i actually think now taika watiti is working on an animated willy wonka series for netflix yeah what taika watiti is actually working on two animated series for netflix it's a willy wonka and then an oopa loompa spinoff um so i really it, really hope that's not true no it is truly announced is there happening. anybody asking for that no well i guess the royal doll estate is asking for it god i feel it's weird like maybe my favorite author just getting <laughs> just getting mined for everything he's got is Roald doll your favorite author yeah i've read the good majority of his books so i guess oh, wow. I, I can't say that about any other author so did you read The Glass Elevator? Yeah, I did. Do you like The Glass Elevator? <laughs> I mean, it's batshit insane. Uh-huh. I, uh, but yes, I like it. <laughs> Should they make it into a movie? Here's the thing. I mean, the, the reason they haven't made it into the book is because it's so wildly different than anything we got in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that it would almost feel like a slap in the face. Uh-huh. Like the book in a way almost feels that way where you're just like, what the fuck is this? Right. The The entire plot centers around trying to contain like maniacal aliens that look like worms. Whoa. That's the plot of Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator has fuck all to do with candy and growing up and, and coming of age or anything like that. Or Do they or, hang out in the chocolate or, factory? 
Mm, I think they go back to it at the very, very, very end. Is Willy Wonka involved in these adventures? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, Willy Wonka knows everything there is to know about alien life forms, Nico. I want this movie so bad. It is fucking nuts. It's awesome. Like it's it's totally my bag, but like like I I don't think people would be ready for it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't think they'd ever be ready for it. No. <laughs> to be like uh that was a fucking sequel to the Chocolate Factory movie. <laughs> um yeah aliens writing scram everywhere like what wow i don't know it's weird sign me up uh you know this is definitely the movie i've seen the most out of these six oh um, god me too because as a kid i just watched it every other week i had it on dvd and vhs um i remember actually not hating the remake um but i was young and stupid so i was probably wrong about that i i mean i used to be okay with the remake when i was younger because it's more faithful to the book and then i sat down when i was a little bit older and committed myself to both and realized how fucking terrible that remake actually is it just has no heart and that's got, the problem it's got no heart and it's completely tone deaf and the choices are bizarre uh, and i think johnny depp is reprehensible in the movie on all fronts yeah so it's it's yeah. like i sort of realized oh god yeah it's a it is a train wreck and it sort of reminded me of like how you judge adaptation and trying to understand just because of an adaptation might necessarily be more faithful. That doesn't necessarily mean all the choices are going to work and why we change things for a reason. Mm. Certainly the case. Um, yeah. Gene Wilder is just so leaps and bounds better than Johnny oh. Depp in every conceivable way. Uh, he's actually incredible in this movie. Yep. I and that's why I mean, it's underrated. Like he gives a great performance and uh, the movie is like, incredibly moving mm-hmm. and also terrifying when it needs to be terrifying and heartfelt yep. when it needs to be heartfelt. The river sequence through the cave, <laughs> that fucking poem that Wonka recites gave me nightmares. The imagery that's being projected on screen with the fucking worms and bugs and oh. the, the, the red lighting. Every, it's just horrible. Yeah. Oh my God. It's terrible. It's one of the most horrifying childhood traumatic sequences I've ever seen. But there's a number of moments like that when um, what what's the the villain's name, quote unquote, that tries stealing Charlie's ticket. It's like Stalwart Slugworth. Slugworth. When Slugworth approaches Charlie outside the the uh, the candy store for the first time and tries stealing, the, he like jumps out of nowhere. I remember that being like one of the signature jump scares of, of my childhood. So mm-hmm. much of a pussy I was as a kid, but still like terrified me. Slugworth yeah. just as as this like uh, this guy preying on an innocent child who lives with his four grandparents. Um, yeah, everything about this movie was so moving in the right ways. Uh, yep. The music is obviously amazing. The mm-hmm. production design, although a little tacky, is incredible. Be, yeah, I mean, that factory room, that that big garden, as we were talking about, was just a, a work of art. It was really oh, yeah. good stuff. Like, right up there with Wizard of Oz for some of the great production design of all time. Well, it's good production design, not necessarily just because of, like, the chocolate factory, but, like, even, like, when they're in, like, Joe's house, too, or, or the, some of the candy stores around London and whatnot, it's very well done. Like, everything mm. across the board is pretty top-notch here. Mm. Um, it's 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 kind of goes without saying. It's it's one of my favorite movies as well. I, I'm thinking back to this as I think most of the movies on this list are amongst my favorites, almost yeah. every single one of them. Yeah. Um, and, you know... That's fine. <laughs> we were eventually going to get there. But um uh yeah, I've 
I'm, it's it's funny because the movie is you know quote unquote a kids film, but the movie asks a lot from its its kid audience mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, it's sort of asking them to accept the fact that punishment is a real thing, mm-hmm. and it's something that you actually deserve if you're you're not brought up pro- properly, mm. and that's part of growing up. And if you miss those steps will say you're just going to be a horrible little goblin of a, of a person. Yes. And the, the movie is sort of asking the kids in a way to sort of reflect on their own behaviors. Cause I think the movie understands that each one of the other kids sort of represents those facets of what a kid could become aside mm-hmm. from, I guess a little psychopath. You don't <laughs> quite have that. <laughs> I mean, maybe Mike, Mike could be a psychopath. Yeah. But- <laughs> well, certainly. Um, I do appreciate the fact that this movie lets its kids be little shits. Yep. Uh, Because a lot of movies of the era would not have let these kids be such little shits, nor would they punish these kids for being such little shits in the way that they do. Yep. uh, (laughs) Which is often very vile and grotesque. Uh, You know, blowing up a a girl to the size of a blueberry and, you know, (laughs) sucking a, a, a fat boy up a chocolate tube and, but humiliating him too. This, this is the thing yeah. is that the movie, when it when it punishes the kids, in a way it kind of bullies them. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, like the kid going up a tube stops because hey, you're too fat. You can't yeah, make it all the way up. Fatty, yeah. Fucking Augustus. <laughs> <laughs> and the, Violet is needs to be one with the golden eggs, and oh, then yeah. as as a result, she gets put down the furnace. That's, that's not Violet. That's Veruca, right? Oh, Veruca. Yeah, yeah. Violet's yeah. the blueberry. Violet, yeah. you're turning Violet. Violet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. What are you talking about? Oh my God. It always happens with the blueberries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Veruca Sol fell down that chute, man, Veruca, that was pretty yeah. terrifying too. It's like, Oh my God, what's going to stop her fall? No, I always thought that too. And I was like, and then when he says like, Oh, it's gonna, it's going to go to the furnace. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> I used to come up with the most horrifying images of what would happen. And then finally, when I like was able to clear that away, I caught the line where he was like, I believe that furnace is backed up after X amount of weeks and so on. And I'm like, oh, OK. Well, hopefully. No, they, no, hopefully, though. Right. Hope, yeah. Oh, or yeah. they emptied it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, figure out later, like, yeah, they're just, just covered in garbage, which they don't show in this one. They show all the aftermath of those characters in the um in the remake and yes. i kind of like it better that they don't show it I agree. it's like it, it it makes the impact feel better in a way like oh i don't want to be cast down a chute into a furnace as a kid i don't want to be blown oh up. i think it's way more ominous the way they do it here yeah i agree. Yeah, no doubt to show that they're just all okay at the end of the first one or the end, end of the remake is uh, a little a little more satisfying and i i think that shouldn't be the point um yeah. The other thing about this too, though, and this is a subtle little uh, difference that that you'll miss out on, is Charlie, unlike the other four kids, is actually more adult than some of the adults Mm -hmm. in this movie. Um, Oh, yeah. So you have sort of two sides of the coin. Grandpa Joe is the one that decides to drink the soda and almost gets Charlie and him killed at the the top of that... uh, at that fan at the top of the ceiling there. Um, So Grandpa Joe actually at his age expresses some immature thoughts and behavior. I say um, that a lot though. It's funny you bring that up too, where I'm like in a way like m- maturity sort of goes backwards at a certain point. I've always believed mm. this. Like when you get to a certain age, you start to uh, digress in a, in a weird way. And you know, it's hard to like, es- 
it's hard to buy into that because we always say the older that you get, the more mature. But I don't know. You sort of you sort of lose that and you go back to your old ways. I don't know. And that's certainly evident here. And I've always thought that Charlie was actually the most adult of the bunch, oddly. Right. And it's cool because he's also not entirely I, I mean, he's pretty close to flawless, but I like that the movie actually tests him. You yes. know, it's he doesn't just get off scot free. It's not like, I don't know, Ray from fucking Star Wars or anything like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like it takes takes the time to actually be like, we're going to put you in this situation and see if you can earn it. Right. And yeah. he certainly does. And uh, I cannot say enough about Gene Wilder, by the way. Okay. Um, I think his best performance. It's definitely his most iconic. It's uh, it could, man, it could be his best. I don't know. I love him in Blazing Saddles very, very much. Um, I also love him in Young Frankenstein, though. Yeah, I do too. Uh, but I think I think this is it. Could I think be. This, I think this is it. I mean, he's so in control. He's so in command. He's the type of guy you want to listen to. You understand why the world would want to get into his chocolate factory. With Johnny Depp, it's like, ugh, this guy's just a recluse. He's a weirdo. I'm not going to let my kids around him. Here's the thing. I believe that Gene Wilder would be the head of a chocolate factory. Yeah, that too. I don't believe that Johnny Depp would ever do something like that. And if he did, I don't want to go in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do not want to go in there. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, the, like you said, command is a big thing and confidence. And the guy just like, like, like completely sells himself into that role. I mean, just every decision he makes is, is, just about right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like when the kid falls into the to the to the chocolate, and instead of helping him out, he just looks at the pool and he's like, "Oh, my chocolate, my beautiful chocolate." <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. I, I what's what else is there to say? I mean, this, this is a great movie. It's, yeah, there's nothing and, else to say. It's a children's classic. You're going to show it to your kids for the next forty years, and they'll continue to enjoy it for many years to come. And there's something to be said for that. And it's timeless. It's the timeless. other thing. It is it is incredibly incredibly timeless and one of the best opening title sequences ever with that chocolate being made. Oh my god, I love mm. it. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, that's Willy Wonka. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, you can stream Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory if you have Directv, and you can get Dirty Harry on Netflix. So, go make ahead. it easy for you. Uh, Harold and Maude. Ooh. Is next on the list. Um, Harold and Maude, uh, a movie that I think at its time received mixed to negative reviews. Roger Ebert, for example, did not give it a positive review. Really? Um, and I think in the years to come became a cult classic. Directed by the great Hal Ashby, starring Ruth Gordon and Bud Court. Nominated for two Golden Globes, but no Oscars. Young, rich, and obsessed with death, Harold finds himself changed forever when he meets lively septuagenarian mod at a funeral. What is a septuagenarian? No idea. Okay. Let me look that up. I should know this, but I haven't seen Harold and Maude in a couple years. Yeah, me too. I should know what Ruth Gordon's profession is. Septuagenarian. What, the what does she do? Yeah, what is the hell does she do? I don't know. Man, I should rewatch Harold and Maude. I love this movie. Man, I should have rewatched it. I don't know what it... Uh, oh. <laughs> it just means she's between 70 and 79. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's her occupation. She's yeah. between 70 and I was like, and wait a minute. Ruth Gordon worked in Harold and Maude? No, she didn't. She lived in a fucking trailer. All it means is that she's in her 70s. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
man, I love this movie, Adam. I love this movie. This. The dogs are going crazy for this movie. They love it, too. That's how great Harold and Maude is. This could be my favorite movie on the list. Yeah, easily could be for me as well. Yeah. This movie's incredible. This is a movie I saw. I think I saw it in school and um, sort of like broke myself into it being like, I, 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 you know what it was is that I watched the trailer for it actually on YouTube mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my God, this is so me. And mm-hmm. then I watched it and I was like, oh, this is actually much weirder than I thought it was going to be. It's, and then it became much more mature and it, in a way, it actually took me a while to find my groove with it. And by the end of it, I was just completely touched. That's Hal Ashby, I think. Um, yeah. He's kind of just a big hippie. And he had a yeah. lot of weird out there movies about pretty mundane subjects. Mm-hmm. Uh, Being There, for example, is a, yeah. a pretty grounded movie, but also uh, very unique and quirky in its oh, humor. Yeah. Um, Harold and Maude is very much that. I think it is my favorite Hal Ashby movie, although I'm a, a, I'm a big admirer of his work. Uh, it is The Graduate, but just a little edgier, a little more real, a little more weird, <laughs> a little more honest. And The I Graduate's know- one of my 10 favorite movies of all time, no doubt. But Harold and Maude goes places that uh, I think Mike Nichols didn't have the courage to go, quite frankly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say it's like one is more real than the other. I'd certainly say one is more bold. Mm. One, one, one takes a pretty, a pretty intense chance on an idea mm. and, um, and executes it just as well, if not better. Yeah. Um, but I, at the same time, I understand why audiences maybe didn't respond to it as well when it came out, because this is, you know what this one's kind of like is her. Oh, that's a good comparison. Yeah. Where yeah, I I feel like a lot of people getting introduced to this film are are kind of like, "Ew, gross. No, I don't want that." And they by doing that they're entirely missing the point that the movie is 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 getting at. Everything the movie's trying to say is almost a criticism on that very reaction. Uh yeah, well, I I think that's actually a very good point. Her is a movie uh that is kind of dystopic in that people have sex with computers and that's supposed to be a, a dystopia of sorts. Um, but it ultimately comes out on the side of human connection. It's not advocating yeah. the, the no. weird behavior that these characters display. Um, I don't know though, I, but I do think like this movie does come out on the side of their relationship, Harold and yeah. Maude. Oh, like, absolutely. These characters have sex in this movie. A seven year old lady has sex or at least implied sex with a man in his late teens, early twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're meant to believe that they're in love. And I think we're meant to buy that. Aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, it's on un- what I will say is that like the movie is one of the most subversive romance tales I think ever told. Oh yeah. But at the, but at the same time, it's pretty romantic. It's pretty loving and, and tender. Certainly tender. I, I mean, Every scene with those two together, especially when Harold is explaining why he'd rather be dead, mm. is just like, like I don't know. 
it's completely affecting. I, I, I think that was the point, at least for me, where I was just like, okay, this, this movie is, 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 is working better than I initially expected. And it almost made me rethink like any sort of reservations I might've had. And I sort of casted them aside and I was like, wow, you know, I can't, I can't really deny the fact that this is actually hitting me on a deeper emotional level. And I thought about, you know, what, what those themes of love and romance actually are about. And it, yeah. It, so you mentioned that scene where he's explaining why he wants to die and why he, he enjoyed being dead, which is just yeah. one of the great monologues um, in any Hal Ashby movie. It's so well written and so smart. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Roger Ebert's initial criticism, and I'm sure this was a criticism of a lot of people at the time, is that the movie sort of trivialized suicide and all these stunts that uh, Harold was pulling at the beginning of this movie did nothing but annoy his mother. The impact was not felt like, for example, there's a scene where he's drowning in a swimming pool or pretends to be drowning in a swimming pool. And his mother just keeps on swimming by and pays almost no mind to Harold's, uh, suicidal tendencies, or at least perceived suicidal tendencies. Um, but I, I actually don't think the movie ends that way. Uh, I think the movie ends up, uh, giving Harold a lot of humanity and you, you do understand, although very strange and outlandish behavior, you understand why he does what he does and you understand that he is attempting to cry for help and he never got that help from his mother, from therapists, from whatever. And Maude is the first person to answer in a way that he understands as familiar. Yep. You know, and, and that's just a, a really beautiful thought and it's, you know, it, it almost takes someone in their 70s who is on death's door and is as close to understanding death as anyone to be able to speak to a young man and explain why life is so meaningful and so important. And man, if that theme right there, if that synopsis doesn't just bring a tear to your eye, I don't know what does, dude. <laughs> well, this is I've said this before, like when we talked about when we when we did 2049 uh, three years ago. Oh, my God. Three years ago. Jesus Christ, <laughs> man. We were talking about the ending of Blade Runner 2049. I made a comment where, in a way, that where Kay is laying down on the steps and he's sort of appreciating life greater than he ever had before because he's about to die. Mm. There's sort of like a deep significance of that. And it's very prevalent here where all the characters are sort of faced with the idea of death constantly. Mm. And in matching that with each other, it sort of makes it a little more impactful for them. And they sort of... Uh, well, I mean, at least she saves him from his nasty tendencies in that way. Yes. You know, where she had already well, accepted it. in a it. way, in a way, or he, he at least is at peace with them. Yeah. Right? Like, there's, yeah. of course, at the end, I don't want to spoil too much of the movie, but the car drives off the cliff and he ends up standing there. So he's, he's still pulling these stunts, but um, I think he's more at peace and certainly has a fonder appreciation for, um, for just existing in the world, yeah. although he is still obsessed with death and Modin was also, let's be clear, obsessed with death too. Um, yeah. She but has get- the perspective that he didn't have. And you, you sort of, you think if they were born at the same time, they would be, you know, kindred spirits in that way. You know, well, they if, are. If, yeah. Yeah. If, if, oh, they are currently, yeah, they wouldn't be kindred spirits. They would just be, uh, lovers. Like if she was in her twenties, he was in her, his twenties. Um, like it's, a, you can almost imagine the romance that, 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 that could have been, there. Yeah, that could yeah. have been, and that wasn't there. Yeah, and but the movie goes out of its way to to acknowledge that and be like, it shouldn't really matter if they're in that weird age difference. I mean, 
granted it's a little uncomfortable oh yeah the fact that but that again that's certainly the point but it, again it's making a point about like like perspective and and life choices and how you take in something like existence and death and whatnot and how it shouldn't really be as much of a burden you know mm. it doesn't even necessarily need to be a cry for help yeah uh so. ruth gordon by the way is astounding in this movie <laughs> yep she's astounding um she's so full of life she's so lovable um, you just want to spend more time with her and you understand why Harold would want to spend more time with her. Yeah. Um, th- man, this movie is, it's just so goddamn moving mm-hmm. and it's so weird that it didn't get the reception that I think it deserved in 1971 and that it, it's considered a cult film now because I it watched is? this movie. Yeah. I watched this movie and I think like this is an all time classic. Like this should be studied in film schools and everyone should have this as a frame of reference. Like, what is yeah. so controversial about this movie? I don't know. It's great. I mean, like you said, I mean, one of the more touching films I think I've ever seen. Yeah. For that reason. It's just so sweet that at the end of the day, like, get over it. And I mean, that the, the Cat Stevens music is awesome. Oh, my God. How could you go without mentioning that? It's perfect. And very, like, again, like, just here's the, like, another thing I appreciate so much about this movie, and I, I always cite it when I see it, is that this movie is absurd and mm-hmm. at, at times kind of surreal. And that's a, it's, it's hard to find your tone when you're dealing with subject matter like this, but it does, like, remarkably well. And I can't say any other filmmaker could have done that. I, I can't even imagine a scenario where I would have been able to find that tone. It's excellent. That's that's Ashby though, man. Yeah. I mean, that's being there. We talked about this when we yeah. reviewed being there on, on this podcast. I think we did. Yeah. A- any other filmmaker approaches that as a much more broad satire. And it's, it's, you know, most directors would make it more cynical, would make it more absurd, would make it more over the top in it's comedy. How Ashby takes satire and plays it straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you get this sort of uncanny Valley effect yeah. of, you don't know if I'm supposed to be watching a straight drama or I'm supposed to be watching a satirical comedy mm-hmm. and that that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I understand why that might not be everyone's bag. Yeah. That is totally my bag. I'm seeing one thing, but I'm feeling something else. In this case, I'm seeing a 20 year old uh, literally make love to an 80 year old. And, uh, I buy it as though it's, it's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> that's a good point too. Yeah. That type of story. Yeah, it's, it, you're, but I like the way that you said, though, it, it does thread that line between, I guess, the absurd and the sublime, right? Yeah, The certainly. preposterous or the just uh, the the uh, the sublime. It's so sublime. <laughs> it is. No, it's fucking no, I know so it's, sublime. It's, it's just I, fucking like Santeria in the background. That's how sublime this shit is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great movie. Yes. But I, 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 yeah, I'm right. I'm right there because it could have so easily had failed because you see movies like this a lot where it, not so much the subject matter, but they're going for a very, very bold idea and they just don't know what to do with it. And I don't know. It makes me wonder like how someone is, is capable of that. And maybe it's integrated in Hal Ashby better than it would have been anybody else. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, it's yeah. Hit- only only he could have made this movie. Let's be yeah, clear. Yeah. 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 And I'm so it, glad. I think of this before I think of uh, being there in terms of Hal Ashby. So, wow, I think I do too. But it's damn close, man. Mm-hmm. It's damn close. Uh, also, one of my favorite opening scenes in the history of film. Oh, <laughs> adore this opening scene. 
Yep. The way that he toys with you and he sets up the suicide and you're like, oh my God, what movie am I about to watch? Because you buy that Harold tries killing himself in that first scene. And that reveal is so hilarious and disturbing at the same time. That's the one where he's hanging himself or hanged yeah. himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think I had the same response. I'm like, oh, Jesus, what the fuck is this? And then, oh, oh, he's alive. What? <laughs> he's alive. Hmm. Uh, and how, how that changes is great. Just the best, dude. It is a, it's a beautiful movie. Just the best. If you haven't seen Harold and Maude, man, you got to do yourself a favor this weekend. You know, what are you watch- doing with your life? I don't know. You know who should watch Harold and Maude to who? get an idea of like how to like examine like love and whatnot? Who? Christopher Nolan. Maybe he should have taken some inspiration from Harold and Maude before writing Interstellar. Okay. Um, <laughs> Any chance I get. Stream Literally. Harold and Maude on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Any chance I can get. Stream it. Watch it. Love it. Uh, the French Connection. The French Connection. Popeye Doyle, baby. Woo! The French Connection. You went to Poughkeepsie, didn't you? You went to Poughkeepsie. Just tell me. What, you clean your toes? You stick your finger in your toes? Did you clean your toes in Poughkeepsie? <laughs> Directed by Billy Freaks, starring Gene Hackman. Oh, yes. Gene. Yeah, you know what? You know, I might give like a toe in order to see Gene Hackman in a movie again. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, what would I give? I always forget that he retired. That's so crazy. I would love that. What's the last movie he did? Oh, boy. I don't even know. It wasn't Crimson Tide, was it? Welcome to Mooseport. Gene Hackman and Ray Romano, 2004 comedy. What? Runaway Jury, before that in 2003, Behind Enemy Lines in 2001, Royal Tenenbaums, 2001. He okay. is at the tender age of 90. Oh, he, will oh, turn, wow. he just turned 90 on January 30th. Good for him. Oh, what I wouldn't give. Mm. Dude, give him like an HBO series. Just a bit he's, part in an HBO series. Give me something, Hacks. Uh, he's not coming back, dude. I know he's not, but I'm telling... I, you know what? Three toes. I'll go up to three toes. You can have three <laughs> of my toes. Is that Gene Hackman do one more movie. He's been saying that. That's, that's the letter he's been putting out. Like, I'll act again. Just someone send me their toes. And no one's been able to do it. You could Man. do this. You could do this, Nico. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a bullet for the world. Take, take, <laughs> take some toes for the world. Uh, Gene Hackman's in it. Roy Scheider's also in this movie. Fernando Ray, um, of course, winner of Best Picture, along with Best Actor for Hackman, Best Director, Best Screenplay Adapted from Another Medium, and Best Film Editing. Also nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Roy Scheider, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound. Um, a pair of New York City cops and the Narcotics Bureau stumble onto a drug smuggling job with a French connection. I'm going to give you a sort of weird comparison. See okay. if you're with me on this. Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> okay. This is my Mad Max Fury Road. This okay. movie I see as just an hour and a half of pure viscera. Just pure action, pure viscera. Every part of cinema is utilized to its fullest extent. 
you have crazy sound editing you have mm-hmm. batshit cinematography you have frenetic editing you have over the top acting but like movie star acting with Scheider and Hackman um, and it's just all in this wonderful symphony of action and suspense and thrills uh, yeah. and that makes it to me one of the most rewatchable movies ever and I adore watching this movie whenever it's on TV Oh God, this movie is so much fucking fun. Yeah. I can't even properly express it. I've, I haven't seen this movie as many times as the other ones, but I just remember being like, like this movie felt like, like being punched in the chest and the gut, you know, at the same time Mm. and just being like getting the wind knocked out of me. It's just, it's just so unforgiving and hard hitting and visceral is certainly the correct word. I mean, whoa, it just doesn't stop. I, I don't think that's a bad comparison, honestly. It's, it's, I mean, stylistically, it's, I wouldn't call it, it stylistically and aesthetically, it's very different, of course. But, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of just like utilizing, uh, filmmaking and a fairly simple story to just, just, I mean, tell just this cinematic powerhouse of a film on all fronts. Like, I mean, you basically just covered everything with its editing and its performances and even some of the set pieces as well. It's just, it's just an yeah, some awesome of the set pieces. You think <laughs> the fucking the, Brian De Palma once said that there's no greater action car chase scene than the under the train sequence. I mean, he saw it and he's just like, yeah, I'm never going to do that better. No, he basically That's said like, just, yeah, once that happened, it's done. There's, yeah, there are no game, car games over games. over. Yeah. Freaking one. That's it. Yeah. Oddly, take, take your ball and go home. William freaking of all fucking people. That's one. That's not like a lot of, those who have like of the film uh the the film professors who haven't come to the side of fury road yet always cite uh that particular scene i actually had an argument with a film professor once on that very subject and then he he brings up uh french connection i'm like well that's a good point that's what was the subject what was the subject we're talking about action movies and he he had a he had like a, a a problem with action films on principle and i just thought that was stupid and i i what does that mean what do you mean by had a problem with action films on principle he just thinks like it's the same reason why it's like oh it's block it's blockbuster cinema fuck you it it was that same logic it was just very biased and dumb and (laughs) and i'm just like dude like like what what do you what that makes no sense to me i was like what what is i mean what's a silent film if not an action film sure you think you know what is the what is the, the director yell before every fucking take (laughs) <laughs> it's just really yeah, film dumb. is movement right yeah exactly that's, that's, it's what, that's what's unique to film is that it moves yeah so i just thought it was like the most absurd sentence I'd, I'd ever heard and i eventually brought up car chases and his response was eventually like oh i don't know the french connection is really good and i'm like yeah you think okay but you watch that scene it's not just the camera work although the camera work is great it's not just the editing the editing is great but it's also like the sound and the wreckage and the carnage and like the violence of that scene, even though no mm. one gets shot or anything in that particular sequence, you don't see anyone die. No one gets hit by the car. Mm-hmm. Actually watching the vehicle get torn up on the street. It's so grounded and real. And it's almost as violent as a war movie. It, like it feels like a where you'd see something like fast and furious and it's like, okay, a car falls off a cliff or gets smashed up and you don't feel the impact of that. You feel the impact of every hit of every yeah. curb that's run over of every car that's smashed of every pedestrian that has to run out of the way you are so in the moment during that scene and that's oh why God. i compare it to mad max fury road 
every piece of violence, quote unquote, is felt to the fullest extent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and like you said, I mean, sound design is a big part of that. It's but like the details specifically, how he just barely misses a car that that he's just driven past because he he had a red light, you know, stuff like that, and just hitting the trash cans. I mean, the, it is aggressive in the 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 purest extent i mean a lot of that is also due to the fact that they didn't have a permit when they were filming that and they just that's gorilla, insane dude. they gorilla styled it they just said okay let's just go out and shoot but they they there were other cars on the there were not other cars on the road yeah there were they actually just Those went were out real and, cars they went out and illegally shot that scene what are you talking about so you're saying that like real cars were swerving out of the way as Popeye Doyle was speeding through the street. Mm-hmm. Oh, let me read this right now off IMDb. Yeah. The car chase was filmed without obtaining the proper, proper permits from the city. Members of the NYPD tactical force helped control traffic. Okay, so <laughs> they weren't just letting people through. The That's set. like all they had, though. <laughs> just but NYP- most of the control was achieved by the assistant directors with the help of off-duty NYPD officers. Okay, yeah, so this was just like real rogue shit. Yeah. Many of whom had been in, uh, involved in the actual chase. The assistant directors under the supervision of uh, the police chief cleared traffic for approximately five blocks in each direction. Permission was literally uh, given uh, to control the traffic signals on those streets where they ran the car chase. Even so, in many instances, they illegally continued the chase into sections with no traffic control where they actually had to evade real traffic and pedestrians. I told you. <laughs> many of the near collisions in the movie were therefore real and not planned. This is insane. With the I- exception of the near miss of the lady with the baby carriage, which was carefully rehearsed. Thank God. A flashing police <laughs> light was placed on top of the car to warn bystanders. A camera was mounted on the car's bumper for the shots from the car's point of view. Hackman did some of the driving himself, but the extremely dangerous stunts were achieved by stuntman Bill Hickman with freaking filming from the back seat. This is so Billy freaking. <laughs> this is so freaking. Oh, yeah. Freaking oh, yeah. operated the camera himself because the other camera operators were married with children and he was not. <laughs> Good on you, Billy freaking. What a madman. Oh, boy. Isn't that oh, great? <laughs> dude, freaking's a legend, man. Yeah, he is. What a career freaking has had. Oh, yeah. It's this, the exorcist and like nothing for years. And then he just does killer Joe out of nowhere. Yep. So good. Uh, yeah, the guy's mad. This movie is mad. I, why would you ever film this scene rogue? Why would you not get proper permits to do this? That's what I'm talking about. The mo- the scene feels dangerous. It feels like what actually was going on. Like, mm. holy shit, I'm going to get into a car accident right now. That's mm-hmm. what it feels like. It is the most stressful, like like five minute car chase I've ever seen. For that reason, yeah. and I, I think it's safe to say it is the best car chase ever filmed. If you um, want to exclude Fury Road, can you relax? Can you fucking chill out? I mean, this thing was filmed in 1971 with no permits, and like Mad Max Fury Road was made in 2012. Context matters, bro. I know it's hard. Context though, matters. Given what they did in Fury Road, though, I don't know. Can you just settle the hell down? It's not enough that we all acknowledge that it's a masterpiece. You need to then put it in like the pantheon of every movie. I will not. I will not stop until every human being on earth admits that it's better than Godfather and Godfather part two. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Really. Got it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I I think Roger Ebert also wrote about this in his review. Uh, The movie actually doesn't get credit for how exciting it is for the other 
120 minutes. Obviously, oh, the yeah. car chase is the signature element, but this movie is so much fun. And Popeye Doyle is such an awesome character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a racist. He's a scumbag. Uh, like there are scenes where he just frisks black people out of nowhere. He just breaks into a black bar and just says, "Hey, put your hands on the wall." Yep. Um, so like, yeah, he's not a good guy, and a lot of the cops in this movie are not good guys. Uh, but he is so goddamn charismatic because <laughs> Hackman was always that way. Yeah, it's the thing is that I realized pretty. Uh, I mean that. <laughs> Man, I don't know when it was. There's a point in the movie where you just kind of realize that he's more so the villain than anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, he really is. He is a, a gigantic piece of shit. And which is, again, why the ending to those who didn't have the context. Like, say you, you know, watch, like, the last half hour of the movie and you saw that, you'd be very disappointed by that ending. But mm. in a way, like, that's all always what should have happened because this character did not deserve uh, a common victory right at and all he is he is off the rails too yeah he is he is okay. just off the rails has lost control and is out for blood mm-hmm. um like the criminals are just making a living right they're just yeah. doing business yeah. i mean obviously they're trying to assassinate cops no doubt but like there is a professionalism to what they do and i don't think that they are as psychopathic and ill-intentioned as gene hackman's character yeah. Who, uh, you know, I just think gets his thrills and his kicks doing this, mm-hmm. you know, busting people on the street and uh, tracking down the bad guys and getting in firefights. Dressed in a Santa costume. Dressed in a Santa. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The ending is incredible, man. The ending oh, is so good. It's perfect. Again, one of those like perfect notes for a movie to end on. Yeah. Who did he shoot? What, what was that guy that he shot at uh, the end? Well, spoiler. Well, whatever he shoots somebody. Maybe people oh, haven't. Gene seen Hackman it. shoots somebody in the movie. Big spoiler. He shoots one of the cops. Okay, that's it. no. I was wondering. Friendly fire. Yeah, I know it was friendly fire. I remember that. But I, I was trying to remember like if it was a character that was like giving him trouble at the end. I think. I think the guy. Was. Well, it was. It was the guy that um, that uh, was not a fan of his. That was that kept insulting him. Oh. It was like, oh, you're responsible for all those dead cops. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, that's grim. Yeah, certainly grim. Uh, (laughs) This is an incredible movie that is so rewatchable and is such a a great cable escape, although it is quite gritty and has a lot to say. It does. Like it's and it doesn't bog you down with what it has to say, which is something Mm -hmm. I appreciate. Those are my favorite movies where it's like the theme is not in your face all the fucking time. Hmm. The movie has the the ability to be a wonderful action movie and shut up while saying something at the same time. So exactly right. Uh, you cannot stream it anywhere, unfortunately. Um, but if you can seek it out, I mean, this is just a great syllabus for everybody. You should watch every movie on this list. Oh God. No, it's really a really should. good year. It's just a really, Literally. really good year. This is one of those movies. I'm surprised the criterion channel hasn't picked up yet. I don't see it a lot. Harold and Maude is on the criterion channel. Oh yeah, I know. I know. I know. A few and of these so is Last I... Picture Show, I think, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's fairly mainstream French Connection. I don't think like... I mean, it's hard to put a Best Picture movie on the Criterion. Uh, yeah, collection. I know. There's only... Jesus, there's not many. There's only like two, I think. Well, do they really need to be preserved? Like, who's forgetting about French Connection? Well, that's... No, that's the thing. It's like... But they, they preserve things because it's it's harder to find and that's the thing though i aside from it being on cable i don't see it like available like digitally as many, in as many places mm-hmm. or or physically I, it's not a movie i see as often you ever see any of the sequels 
No, I, I, it's funny when, when I was looking this up, I was like, oh shit, this movie has sequels. I had no idea. Yeah. Part two apparently is okay. All right. Uh, the third one, I don't know anything about. I had no idea. Yeah. There you go. Uh, a clockwork orange. Ooh, let's talk about it. Shall we? Mm-hmm. Written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Mal- Malcolm McDowell and others. Mostly just Malcolm McDowell, though. Nominated for four Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing. Of course, the adaptation is based on a novel by Anthony Burgess. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the National Film Registry, for some weird reason. In the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct diversion experiment, but it doesn't go as planned. Um, this movie is known for its visuals. Yeah, as many Kubrick movies are, it's known for its production design. It's known for its staging, and all of that, of course, is excellent. Um, there are several iconic images, including the opening scene at the milk bar, yep. including Malcolm McDowell's Alex DeLarge in uh, in the chair getting treatment, quote unquote, with his <laughs> eyes pulled open and shown horrible films. Uh, and and that is all well and good. This is a visual marvel of a movie, and I will not uh, dispute that by any means. But the thing I love most about it is the script. Yeah. That's the thing I love most about it. Uh, the language of this script is so unique, so outside the box. Uh, it has such a, it's, it's operating on its own wavelength. It's almost <laughs> like you're hearing a language for the first time. Yes. And you're like learning it as you go. You know what I mean? It's like if you were able to learn Spanish in one sitting, <laughs> like that's, that's what a clockwork point. orange is you know it, at first it's weird it's like they're speaking in weird futuristic slang uh you know it's, it, alex well, calls it's, ludwig von beethoven the, the old ludwig von uh <laughs> you know what's the principal's name that goes oh yes alec alex my boy what's that character's oh, name oh god i don't remember that guy's or he's a the f- cop right he's not he's, he's a cop right He's Give weird. Give to school, my boy. Yes. <laughs> I've just been back from the hospital. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's so slimy. It's, everybody is speaking their own foreign language, and it's like you watch the movie for two hours, and you're just in a bubble. You're just <laughs> in the pocket of this movie, and then you leave, and none of the language outside of the movie makes sense to you anymore. It's like you have to turn your, you have to recalibrate your brain in order to understand the rhythms of this script. The dialogue is so good. And I think Kubrick for as, uh, as iconic a director as he is, was also one of the great screenwriters of all time. And this movie proves it. Yeah. This is like, this is a a fundamental tenant Adam film. Yeah. (laughs) And that's pretty fucking obvious. Sure. Uh, there's, this is a, a flip flop for me where I go back and forth sometimes with a clockwork orange and, um, a Dr. Strangelove. And I usually come out with Dr. Strangelove is my favorite, me but, too. but this is fucking close. I, yeah, there's not much about this film that I dislike. It's one of my favorite dystopian future films. It's one of my favorite psychological thrillers, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite character studies. It's 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 one of my favorite examinations of sort of the ignorance and hubris of society and thinking that they can control people like this and just how bleakly futile that is. I mean, a lot of these things are futile as it is, but I mean, just like the, the extent that this movie goes to say that you people are just wasting your fucking time mm. on this. There's no saving that. There's no saving someone like Alex in a weird way. Yeah. 
is just, oh my God, it's such a horrible, but like eye-opening realization. And it is so earned and so powerful through everything that he's put through in the movie. And it's just like, it's the craziest shit when you're watching it and you're like, this guy is a monster. He's an absolute psychopath. He's one of the the greatest villains ever. And you care so deeply for him by the end of it. Mm. And the the craziest thing about the movie is that by the end of it, you want him to say, fuck you people, I'm going to be crazy. Yeah. Uh, which That's I think nuts. is its own form of social commentary and also yeah. one of the major criticisms that the movie got at the time. Yes. Roger Ebert also did not like A Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. when it came out, wrote uh, an infamously negative review about this movie saying that we are meant to root for Alex and that the movie sort of justifies and condones his behavior. I don't see it that way at all. No. I, I, I see, as you just said, I see him as like this pathetic dog. He's like yeah. a pit bull that has been raised in in either captivity or, or just a, a, a hellscape. And this is the only way he knows. And there is no other choice but to put him down. There is no saving him. There is no redeeming him. And all of their attempts are in vain. Um, and the fact that they think that the attempts were successful and that they consider the ending of this movie a victory is both a satire of society and government influence and the, the sort of big brother surveillance state and uh, all of that it's a it's a uh, satire of society but i also don't think it's condoning alex i think you feel no. bad for him but you feel bad for him because again he can't help himself doesn't mean okay. he's not evil and doesn't mean like the rape scenes aren't vile in this movie no, no here here's the thing that like any critics of this movie are forgetting is that now don't get me wrong alex is a wonderfully drawn character and mm-hmm. you understand him thoroughly but the let's make no mistake the movie is using that personality type mm-hmm. it is using that level of insanity to paint a much bigger picture about society in this and about youth yeah yes yeah exactly that's the conceit alex is just sort of the what would you call that the uh the guinea pig for all that yeah it, it, i think sure and, and it's not really necessarily a guinea the test pig. subject he, yeah yeah but he's he's sort of like like the great teacher in a weird way even though he doesn't understand it like the movie is basically saying we're gonna take take advantage of everything that is wrong with this person who is essentially like the antichrist mm-hmm. and see how human other like quote-unquote normal human beings deal with it mm-hmm. and are they better or worse for how they deal with it yeah, he's a poster child um, yeah and, and he's also used for political means mm-hmm. uh for a re-election campaign and for all of that stuff uh yes and i also think the movie um makes the argument in a much more sophisticated way than say joker mm. that society is responsible for people like alex yeah. Um, it, it is the very system that is attempting to correct his behavior that is causing his behavior. Yeah. I, and I you don't, might, th- I don't think that or means he- that you have to sympathize with him though, or that you have to root for him in order to enjoy the movie. And I don't no. think that Stanley Kubrick has ever come out on the side of Alex DeLarge. I think that's just a total misread. <laughs> well, I don't think he- <laughs> Kubrick's again, his conceit is not to say I like, we should all love Alex. You should hate Alex. You should really hate Alex. Like, Mm -hmm. if you were to have dinner with him, I would say, yeah, fuck you, dude. But again, that's not the goal of the movie is to sit down and have dinner with Alex. It's to it is to use Alex to show greater issues with, you know, the the environment that he is, you know, soaked himself in, Mm -hmm. you know. And you see that, though, is the thing is like when you see his home life and you see the city he lives in and just how grimy and horrible it is, you kind of understand why he could have gotten to this level. Mm. The parents aren't really in the picture. He doesn't have like a proper garden. Well, they're just disinterested. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. No one has really been there for him. Like his his intimacy is just having girls back and having a hilarious threesome. <laughs> Man, the threesome is the best, isn't it? It is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> what a choice, too, by the way. Yeah, I mean, the movie is littered with those choices. <gasps> it's great. Because that's like, the other thing. It's the best version of this material because it's the best guy to do it. No, but this is the thing. It's hilarious. It's it, To me, I, it could be... <coughs> excuse me. Uh-oh, it corona. could be. I know. Yeah, I'm coughing. I have corona. That's it. Every time. Stick a fork in him. Terrible. No, burn me with burn me at the stake. I'm yeah. a witch. Yeah. He's a witch. Uh, I, I was gonna say like next to um, uh, Doctor Strangelove, this could be his funniest movie. Hilarious movie. Yeah, well, hilarious. Even in the darkest moments, like obviously it's a rape scene, and the singing in the rain uh, <coughs> montage is not meant to be played for laughs, but there is a sick, perverse comedy to that. Yeah, the choreography, that- the staging, the the line readings, like you're meant to be horrified but also kind of amused at the same time and i think that is part of the point mm-hmm. i think it's all intentional it's really good yeah. it's also very self-aware is the other thing i mean obviously because of the alex character and how he addressed the audience but <clears throat> in the way it uses the medium and kind of comments on him like art and sex is a very mm-hmm. common thing in this movie and that's i mean it's it's pretty overt in the scene where he kills the lady with the giant dick yeah with a massive di- yeah statuesque dick but it intercuts it with flashes of paintings yeah. Like him punching, like crushing her skull with a giant dick, uh, uh, split back and forth between flashes of paintings constantly being like, boom, little art, and, little on art, the nose. And art, sex and violence. It's all, it's all one. Yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. I think in hindsight, a little on the nose for old Kubrick, yeah. but it's never not fun. I don't care. Of course. No, it's, it is insanely entertaining as disturbing as it can be. I know it's a hard watch for a lot of people, but I think part of that is the script. Part of that is the dialogue. Part of it is the world. I like what you said before. The city is quite grimy, but it's also quite beautiful. Yeah. Um, like it, it is a version of the future that is both uh, like really interesting to look at, but also not appealing to be in. You would but never you want to s- travel to this world. Oh, but you could also see it happening. Like, oh I, yeah. In, is in a, in a lot of ways, maybe that this is what cities are like nowadays. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Yeah. And that's the other, like, like they, it's a dystopian future in the same way that I guess, I can't, I can't believe I'm saying this again, but her, it's not as like nice as her, but it's, it's believable in the same way. Oh yeah. Yeah. On the surface, it looks quite appealing, but then once you dig a little deeper, it's like, oh, there is some real fucked up shit going on in this world. And I think I'll stay in my time period. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I think the future can wait. But that's the thing, though. The movie's saying, be careful because we're pretty damn close to this. Yeah. You know, especially the way we handle, like, like mental illness or the way, you know, just the general public handles it, you know, and mm-hmm. that's where it does kind of relate to Joker in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. I'd also like to comment on the score by Wendy Carlos, who also did The Shining. And mm. oh, my God, I love the music in this. This is some of my, like, in my opinion, some of the more underrated film score ever conceived and one of the best synth soundtracks ever. Oh, Yeah. It's great. Oh, yeah. uh, Top to bottom. It. This is just a masterclass of filmmaking. Uh, Kubrick has like 10 of these movies. It's like you watch them and that's how you make a movie, kids. Do that. Yep. Whatever you got to do, just do that. Mm-hmm. Um, every choice feels intentional in a Kubrick movie. Every moment feels earned. Oh, there, especially there, here, yeah. There are no scenes that you would want to cut. There are no decisions you would want to make differently. There's no backseat driving to do here. Um, it's great. Yeah. It's a clockwork orange. It's clockwork orange, man. It's, it's a yeah, obviously. Yeah. Fucking obviously. 
It's one of my cousin's favorite films. It's one of my uncle's favorite films. It's, it's, I am glad to know that people eventually did embrace this film for his, for being as, as really excellent as it is. Apparently not the national film registry though. It's still weird. That doesn't make any sense to me. Fuck them. And I would say this is probably the front runner as of now for induction. Sure. I think the, the obvious choice here in terms of impact, legacy, quality. Yeah. You could wait, have we inducted a Kubrick film yet? Yes, The Shining we put in. Eventually we did. Yeah, we didn't induct it at first, but yeah, you're right, you're right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So probably the front runner, but we will see. We'll see. I don't know goes. if it's my favorite. Like I love it, but I I these this list is so fucking good. Yeah, it's stacked. Uh, this is the last movie on the list. It's called The Last Picture Show. Um, and it's directed by Peter Bogdanovich. And it stars mm-hmm. Timothy Bottoms, a young Jeff Bridges, a young Sybil Shepard, Ben Johnson, Cloris Leachman, Ellen Bernstein. Man, what a cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it won two Oscars, as I said earlier, Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress, also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Ellen Bernstein and Jeff Bridges actually picked up two nominations there. Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay based on the novel by Larry McMurtry, and Best Cinematography. Yep. You can find it on the Criterion channel. Yep. I believe you can also find it on Showtime. Mm-hmm. I think that's how I watched it. I had never seen this movie. I watched it for the first time this week. Yep. I had um, seen it before. Did you watch it again? I put, I picked up a, a little bit more on it just to get a. Like, I didn't watch the whole thing front to back. I just wanted to like give us a brief refresher, and I was like, okay, yeah, I got it, I got it. It's one of those movies I saw uh, in in college, and it thoroughly bummed me out. And uh, I think about it still to this day. Um, watched it Sunday night. We're recording this on Wednesday. It has not left my head. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I think this might be an all-timer for me already. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is... I, I don't remember the last time I loved a movie this much. <laughs> Obviously, I got I to sit with it more. Obviously. Uh, holy shit. <laughs> you can go. I, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> We've been doing this podcast for a year and a half now, and one of the reasons I think why we started doing this podcast is because... We ourselves are big movie fans, but we wanted to catch up on some of the movies that we should have oh, seen, yeah. but we haven't. Yeah. Uh, and this has been a great excuse to like sit down and watch some old classics like Dirty Harry. I went years without seeing Dirty Harry, and I would have went 10 more years without seeing Dirty Harry because I would have never found the right opportunity. This podcast presents us with that right opportunity. Um, I had this. I had a similar feeling when you made me watch uh, Once Upon a Time in the West for the first time. Mm-hmm. We did that, I think, early on in this run. And yes, Man, I was so happy you forced me to watch that because I would have never found an excuse to watch this otherwise. Last Picture Show is a movie that I had been hearing about for years, and I know that many consider it one of the great movies ever made. And uh, did, I did I get you to it? Did I get you to nominate it? When I'm like, "Ooh, Last Picture Show, that was pretty good." <laughs> yeah, I, I think I would have just read it and thought nothing of it. Uh, I probably would have nominated it out of obligation. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't see the catalyst that would have forced me to sit down and watch this had it not been this podcast uh yeah it's um it's it's just one of those magic moments this is the the best movie that that i have watched as a result of this podcast really i am upset with you for not telling me to watch this sooner 
you saw it in film school, evidently. You, you should have sat me down clockwork orange style and just <laughs> stretched open my eyeballs and forced me to watch this in one sitting. Uh, I, I, I'm fairly convinced this movie is going to change my life. I'm, fa- I'm fairly convinced that this is going to be an all-time favorite of mine. Uh, yeah, I only see this movie getting better with age. Mm-hmm. I see it like a fine wine. I don't see it like it just one and done. There's some movies that I watch it and I'm like, whoa, like yeah. I'm going to be watching this thing for years and then I forget about it after a couple mm-hmm. of years. I mean, that happens all the time. Uh, I, I am fairly convinced this thing is going to be a parasite in my head, just living yeah. there and, and haunting my dreams. Holy crap, Adam. Holy, I don't think you understand my enthusiasm for this. This is seriously, <laughs> this is a life-changing experience. I've maybe had this experience 10 times with a movie before. Oh, yeah. This sounds like the most recent one for me on this podcast was Francis Ha. Yeah. Yeah. I had a oh, no. Sim- I, let me assure you, this is higher on my list than Francis Ha is on yours. <laughs> let me assure you. Francis Ha is officially like one of my favorite movies. I can say that for sure. If this thing, if, if, if you tell me in five years, this is my favorite movie ever made, I wouldn't be surprised. It's honestly honestly i i in, in reflection i the only thing i was because because i was very happy you nominated because i really like this movie but i was worried that like because of the 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 atmosphere and tone of it and and the look of the location and even the pacing that you might find it a little boring and maybe not be as into how much the movie is getting at with as when we talked about this over text but just the generational themes and and the 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 cynicism towards uh what came before and the the lack of responsibility that's been had with 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 the kids and the complete disconnect and how everyone's just kind of been abandoned in this movie just like these these ideas that like when i when i saw this movie and like i said it really bummed me out mm-hmm. it like made me thoroughly upset it's one of the more depressing experiences i've ever had watching a movie and that's sort of what made it so poignant for me and I sort of ended up realizing, like, wow, that's that's always going to be like one of the great film experiences I'd I'd have, at least in, in film school for sure. And I'm I'm not kidding. I think about this movie all the time still, and I've it's been years and years since I've seen it. It it yeah hasn't left me at all. It's great. Man, I hope I'm not hyping it up for people. I, I really hope that you don't go into it and you're disappointed by this. Um, I, I'm not sure it's entirely for everybody. It's not like The Godfather. That's like a guaranteed win, in my yeah, opinion. But yeah. like undefeated. When you recommend yeah. this to people, Un- literally an undefeated movie, The Godfather. Yeah, it's like if you don't like it, then you're 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 a communist. Yeah. So this this though is is honestly, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I probably like The Godfather more, but this is getting at something even far more human and far more re- relatable for me personally. And and just, I mean, I mean, I don't know. The, the human relationships in this movie just like break me. <laughs> this this thing is so entirely on my wavelength. Um, yeah, w- which is why I was shocked that you predicted that I would find it boring. Um, I love a character piece. I love like a portrait of a small town. I love a movie with a sense of place and a sense of tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love a movie with crackling dialogue. And although oh, this yeah. is not showy dialogue, it's certainly crackling dialogue. Yeah. Um, Larry McMurtry who is one of, uh, I guess the, the defining novelists of the, of the 20th century, uh, wrote the screenplay, wrote the book that this is based on. He also wrote, uh, the book that terms of endearment is based on. And he mm-hmm. also wrote broke back mountain. Um, so he is, uh, a, a storied, uh, author in his own right and, uh, has been adapted to great success over the years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, you watch this movie and it's the feeling that you get watching a vividly drawn novel. 
um, you understand what all of these characters want, what all of these characters dream of, uh, all of these characters, their shortcomings, their insecurities. Every character gets their moment in the sun. From Jeff Bridges, who's just sort of this insecure guy with a hot girlfriend. From Timothy Timothy Bottoms, who just wants more out of life, so desperately wants to leave this town or to achieve maturity, to to achieve a life that matters. Sybil Shepard, who for her life has been defined by her beauty and is now attempting to break out of that, but is having a hard time doing so. Cloris Leachman, who has lived a life of regret and is in an unhappy marriage and wants something more and feels like it's too late for her. Ellen Bernstein, who, who like her daughter has been typecast as this, as this uh, promiscuous beauty and doesn't know any other way of survival than to just fuck her way out of it, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and then Sam, the lion who is this incredible mentor figure. I, I love that name. I love this idea of a character owns every last vestige of this town has the pool hall has the cinema has the diner those are the only three things to do um in this west texas town and uh once he dies spoiler alert the town goes with him um god my god these people are going to stick with me for the rest of my life these are like friends that i'm going to have now and i feel so much for them uh, mm-hmm. And I feel so much for this town, which is slowly dying. Oh God! Uh, it's and it's it's dying a very subtle death. Um, and you have to p- pay close attention to what's happening during this movie. It's not just night and day, man. It's not like it's just getting a shot in the head and it goes from alive to dead, lights out, soprano style. Um, this this town in Texas has been dying for thirty years, and the residents of this town are uh, uh regret to admit it oh and, god that's... and have a hard time admitting it and watching them go through that is uh oh haunting that's the whole thing though mm-hmm. i mean and, and, let me and the thing that really sells it for me and let's not undersell this here is the cinematography oh my god um this movie like when people say like that movie feels like a photograph yeah. this movie feels like a photograph of 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 an of a of a bygone era in the best sense. Just those sweeping shots of empty land to just a a frame that is entirely filled with this dead town. And the only detail is just like the car in the, the, in the corner that's trying to start or something Mm. like that. And just Mm. emphasizing that life is just no longer here. And you're kind of wondering who's to blame for that because you understand that maybe there was a time where this was much more prosperous, but something along the way just made people break and it's really heartbreaking to watch. It's like one of the most like, like heartfelt American films I've ever seen. It's so American. That's a great point. Yeah. It is so uniquely American. It is that's, so, yeah. it is so uniquely us mm-hmm. in the identity of this town, in the struggles of this town, um, in, in the lust for something greater in the need to go to the big city and to make it and to do something with your life, but also the fear of leaving the safe confines of this town, like mm-hmm. as shitty as these people's lives are, they <laughs> find such comfort in it and they find mm-hmm. such security in it. And you understand entirely why they wouldn't want to leave. I mean, if you're from a small town, unless you were born in a major metropolitan area, you understand the desire to stay at home. Uh, There's a, well, and to like that, return to football games after you've graduated, yeah. you know, 
It's that like preserve. I mean, because it's all you've ever known and it's sort of all you were ever given. So it's like, why would you try to leave that? Why wouldn't you try to preserve it and make it better, even though it's an, an impossible feat? Mm-hmm. And especially when everyone around you is not making it easier. Mm-hmm. And that's the really upsetting thing. You can kind of tell that there's a bit of these characters that just wish that there was a little more than that they could do, a little more that they could say to, to make the adults like care for them a bit more, just anything. But they're never given anything. And it's, oh my God, the scene where the simple kid is hit by the truck and they're just like yeah he, he he steps in the road all the time it's his fault he was hit by the fucking car oh, and and then peter bottoms just like he was just sweeping like oh my it's terrible but that entire scene is a great encapsulation of everything the movie is getting at in a funny way uh certainly um yeah it, it's all sort of metaphorical but in the background you have just these scenes soaked in dread mm-hmm. soaked in despair soaked in loneliness even like the sex scenes, this in many ways is a movie about sex. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, characters cheating on each other because they really have nothing better to do in this town. Um, but like none of those scenes are sexy. And by the way, Sybil Shepherd is incredibly sexy in this movie. Oh, yeah. Incredibly hot. Um, and like she's naked in it, but it always feels uh, like exploitative. It, it always feels gross. It feels like you shouldn't be in the room for these scenes. Oh my um, god! And the way that they're shot, they're both intimate, but but never sexual. And, and that is such an incredible tightrope to walk. I find them like sort of like like hostile and threatening mm-hmm. at times. The pool scene is is one thing, but the the when she finally I guess loses her virginity on the 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 pool table is just like it's like the worst possible scenario you could imagine for a girl to do that. Yeah, it's like it's nothing you would want, and but you sort of see her going in that direction because she has no idea how else to do it. She's like, okay, I just got to fucking do this and I'll do anything. And then she resorts to that and she quickly regrets it. And now, Oh boy. I don't know what it is about that scene in particular. That one always like, like just fucked with me. It's so predatory. It always like kind of broke. It's like watching the nature channel. It's like, Oh God, because poor zebra. That's one of those weird scenarios where I think about what it would be like as me for a parent. Yeah. Oddly. Because I, I remember watching that and be like, I don't ever want that to happen to any of my kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and no, I mean, it's, op- it's actually op- a wonderful articulation for people that don't understand what's going on with this Me Too thing. And like yeah. the idea of power dynamics in the sexual world. Mm-hmm. Um, like that is an incredibly mature depiction of that for 1971. No, exactly. Oh, boy. Bogdanovich no, directs the shit out of this man. Let, let's just say that. I mean, from every shot choice, every edit, it, yeah. it's just, it's perfect. It's by far and away his best movie. I like Paper Moon just fine. I actually really like Paper Moon. I love Paper Moon. Uh, yeah, I like it a lot, but this, uh, you know, Paper Moon is nothing. It is in the shadow <laughs> of this movie, in the vast shadow of this movie. Yeah. I, I really like Paper Moon, but I mean, this is probably technically a better movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So. Um, can't get over the McMurtry script. Uh just can't get over all of the detail. Uh, Jeff Bridges is quite fun in this movie. Uh, he's still doing the Jeff Bridges thing. Uh, even then Jeff Bridges is weird, man. He's always been Jeff Bridges, but he's sort of aged into the proper roles. It's almost <laughs> like he, he was a 60 year old in a 20 year old's body. And it's like, now he's finally hit this, the sweet spot of his career. So he just got better over time. Yeah, he's you know? he's one of those few actors that has gotten better over time because he was always supposed to be that person. But he's he's really good in this movie. Sybil Shepherd is it's a like breakout star making performance from her. Cloris oh, Leachman won the Oscar for essentially one scene, and it is a heartbreaking scene at the end of this movie. It's one of the great meltdowns 
this movie never feels cliche, never feels melodramatic. It is so honest, so real. Um, I don't know what the hell happened to Timothy Bottoms, but he's very good in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember doing that too and looking him up and being like, oh, he basically didn't do much. No. Didn't do that much afterwards, yeah. No, didn't do anything. Um, but again, like as a portrait of a small town, as a portrait of a dying America, as a portrait of teenage angst. Yeah. <sighs> Man, I'm going to be thinking about this movie for a very long time. Yes, you will. I can guarantee that. This is the movie, like, if anyone asks me what if I want, they want a good American film that perfectly represents it, I think this is the one that I might point to more than anything. I think so. And I think they may see it. Yeah, they may see it, and it's like, oh, it's in black and white. It's kind of slow moving, not a big score. It's mostly just pop music that's playing as part of the score. There's not a lot of actual, like, uh, composed stuff here. Um, But, man, it just all works. It all works. Yep. It's great. Yeah, I love it. So here's the deal. We got to induct one of these. <laughs> By the way, you can stream it on Crackle, which is free. So do yourself a favor and just go to crackle.com and watch this movie. Yep. It's it's fantastic. Every you, you everyone kind of owes it to them themselves to check out this this gem. I feel like not a lot not enough people have seen this one. Yeah, so there you go. Um so we got to induct one of these and I'm very torn um, because my heart, as you can tell, is saying last picture show the whole way. <laughs> I mean, it's saying it the whole way and it's going to take a lot to convince me otherwise. What is your favorite movie on the list? Adam Hall gun to your head. My favorite movie on the list. Yeah, dude, I don't fucking know. This is one where it's hard for me to pick favorites. One of the reasons why I thought this was a bad one for you to get back at me was because I don't have a preference. You could pick, you could pick fucking, I don't know, man, you could pick uh, Dirty Harry, even though I know you're not going to and it wouldn't bother me. Um, hmm. It's like, see, the problem is it's like a three-way like split with me. Who are the three? It's like, it's Harold and Maude, um, uh, Willy Wonka, and um, um, Jesus Christ, uh, Clockwork Orange. But I think- Those are your last- top three? Yeah, and I think Last Picture Show would be a great choice, too. It wouldn't bother me even in the slightest. So, I mean, you, if you want to go with your newfound favorite, go ahead, dude. That's a good, it's a great, it's a great, great choice. Um, I don't think we can put Harold and Maude in, although I adore it. Mm-hmm. And that actually, yeah, that might be in my top two. Yeah. Man, if I'm being honest with myself... If I'm being honest with myself, I think Clockwork Orange is outside my top two. I it's think I like Harold and Maude and Last Picture Show better. I think so. Yeah, that one's not not as much a Nico movie as much as I know you like it. Yeah, I think it's it's the de facto choice. Yes, but it again, is the obvious like, choice. Yeah, yeah, it's. But if I, no, if I'm being completely honest with you, if you went Willy Wonka, I'd be like, cool. Any I don't think I, these, I don't think I can put Willy Wonka in. I do think that there is something about Willy Wonka that feels a little insignificant and um, maybe well, that's unfair. I don't know if I just say insignificant. It's certainly the most, I would actually say it's the most iconic. Probably I mean, most, is. Probably is the most iconic. Yeah. But again, that's not necessarily what we're going for. Here. It's not even close to the best movie though. If we're, if we're being fair, it's, it's not even close to the best movie, technically speaking. Um, and I don't think it had a tremendous amount of influence. Um, French connection certainly had a tremendous n- amount of influence has been recognized by its peers 
as a as a great work of filmmaking, a great feat of action. Yep. Um, and uh, you know, Clockwork Orange is that. Um, and Last Picture Show of, is always cited as one of the great movies of all time. So I don't think I would be uh, bucking the trend to pick that one. Harold and Maude is a cult classic. It is not as widely recognized as a great American film, although people are wrong to not acknowledge it as a great American film. Yeah. So that is the only reason why I will cross Harold and Maude off the list. And as I said before, Dirty Harry, I think, is just fine. I don't think it's in the same league as the rest of these movies. So Dirty Harry, Willy Wonka, Harold and Maude, I'm going to cross off right now. Mm. And that leaves us with these three. Uh, if you had to pick, would you go... Would you go Clockwork Orange here of those three? I mean, I'd be content with Last Picture Show. Okay, I'm going to do it. Go ahead. I don't care. I'm going to do it. Okay. There you go. Congratulations <laughs> to Last Picture Show. And I'm getting a call, so my soundboard isn't working. No, I'm, I'm recording the podcast. We need clapping. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> Hey, my guy got a fucking that four was times. Half... I hung up on you three times, dude. What? You call me a fourth time? Me? No, not you. How? Oh. What? Can you hear the da 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 da? What is it? It's I'm getting a phone call, so the the sound effects was not working. Oh, oh, I thought that was half of the Clockwork Orange audience just being like, nope. Oh, we can't do it. Uh. Hold on, let me check this person back. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Congratulations. Very, oh, last picture show. Congratulations, yeah. last picture show. Peter Bogdanovich in the movie Hall of Fame. There we go. That was probably the only instance we were going to have to do it because we didn't do, we didn't nominate Paper and Moon. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We didn't, which was a mistake, no. by the way. Yeah. But then again, we make a lot of them on this podcast. Yes, we do. Um. Cool. All right. So. Well, there you go. There you go. I have an idea for next week. I didn't clear it with you. Okay. Um, I am itching for sports in my life. Oh. I think next week we should do the sports podcast. Are we going to do repeats or completely new ones? Like, because Rocky, is that out? No, I think Rocky's got to be in. All right. Yeah, I think think it does. Um, What about, can we, what about Raging Bull? Do we exclude that one? Well, Raging Bull was already inducted, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Shit, that's right. I totally forgot. Okay. Okay, yeah. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so um, we can do this now, or maybe we can wait on it. Yeah, I need to like do a little bit of research on what I would consider the best sports movies. Yeah, uh, it's kind of hard to just Google search sports movies and to get the best ones. You have to take a little bit of time. So okay. uh, let's work on that, and let's come up with a list of six, and then next week we will induct the best sports movie of all time into the Movie okay. Hall of Fame. How about yep. that? We can do that. Cool. Uh, why is this a thing? It's still going strong. Yep. Oh, yeah. Just had a fun podcast talking Critters 2 <laughs> in honor of Easter. I just did a cultured about Quibi. You know what Quibi is, Adam? Is that that iPhone? What, what do you watch movies on that or something? Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a streaming service for television shows, but each episode is under 10 minutes. How was that? <laughs> Very bad. Okay. Very bad. Okay. And it's, uh, you want to know what uh, $2 trillion down the drain looks like? <laughs> well, that's already happening, my friend. Yeah, that's, 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 that's Quibi for you. That's yeah. Quibi. 
The coronavirus, that's what it's called. $2 yeah, million dollars down the drain. That's true. Uh, so here are my thoughts on Quibi. I did watch a few of those shows, uh, painstakingly watched a few of those shows and reviewed them on the podcast. So uh, check that out. Uh, Two Cents Radio, we just did. Uh, still talking TV theme songs and a bunch of other stuff. That's on the website this week. And uh, I think this is the final podcast I'm doing this week. So now I can take a couple days off because I have been okay. going full steam ahead for about uh, 36 hours. So now I can settle down. Good. Take a break. All right. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, I think I'm okay. I You're at I'm some good. Adam Hall on Twitter? I'm still at, at some Adam Hall. Yes, I am. And I am at Funny Nico Tweets. Give us a holler if you disagree with our choices or you agree with our choices. I would prefer agreements, but I'll take disagreements as well. Yeah. I'll take some disagreements. And that's it. I love you. Until next time. How art thou, thou globby bottle of cheap, stinking chip oil? Come and get one in the yarballs if you have any yarballs, you eunuch jelly thou. <laughs> I would not hire you after that audition. <laughs> <laughs>